big business now is increasingly understanding this. And so, again, I say a year ago, if the mainstream audience in many cases thought the XR were exaggerating for effect, when they woke up in the early part of the new year to see Australia on fire, um, they began to perhaps question that. I think Australia has been the biggest wake-up call one could possibly imagine. It's realising, accepting, the problem is real, it's huge, it ain't going to go away, so therefore at least try. Which is why, I think in a business sense, innovation can really help us here. You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with me, Dan Burgess. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. This is episode 31 of the Spaceship Earth podcast. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Sean Pilo de Shenessy. So what's this podcast all about? Well, the concept of the Spaceship Earth is simple. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth hurtling through space. Like a spaceship, we have a finite amount of supplies and an intelligent operating system which keeps everything replenished as long as we all respect it and use it wisely. So an understanding of how this system works along with deep cooperation between humans and all life is essential to keep us and the spaceship flying. Someone awesome once said, there are no passengers on Spaceship Earth, we are all crew. So in this podcast, I'm having conversations with folks who are responding to the design principles of Spaceship Earth, involved in restoring and regenerating, raising awareness and consciousness, and reimagining how we can live more beautifully through creativity, care, ideas, collaborations, community, new forms of business and more. I talk to artists, photographers, entrepreneurs, writers, designers, strategists, activists, adventurers, healers, creative mavericks and more. I believe their stories can inspire all of us to become more planetary, to fully participate as crew on the Spaceship Earth. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. This is episode 31 of the Spaceship Earth podcast. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Sean Pilo de Shenessy. Sean is an author having uh, released, well, he's, he's got his second book coming out any day. It might already be out by the time I put this out. Um, his first book was called The Post-Truth Business. Very, very uh, relevant right now. How to rebuild brand authenticity in a distrusting world. Released a couple of years ago. Um, well worth a read. You know, because what is true anymore and what is what isn't? I have no idea uh, as we discover and explore a lot in this session. And uh, Sean's new book, his latest book, is called Influencers and Revolutionaries, How Innovative Trailblazers, Trends and Catalysts Are Transforming Business. So a bit of a business vibe. Sean um, has very good pedigree. He's been uh, someone who has been kind of researching uh, the future trends insight right on always on the bleeding edge of what is unfolding um, uh, pretty much all his professional life um, he's still uh, an active researcher strategist works with lots of businesses and agencies around the world um, and uh, he's obviously now um, a, a cracking author and speaker so um, yeah we we get into a lot in this it was a big conversation um, and we went fairly deep and um, jumped into some 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 uh, fairly interesting dimensions. 
So I want a quick shout out to uh, the folks at Bountiful Cow who gave me uh, space to record this one um, and uh, the very lovely Graham Douglas. Thank you for that little space. This is a new a new theme for 2020. I'm sort of popping up in London and other cities and uh, on the hoof. Can we get can I get a space for a cheeky podcast conversation? So, uh, yeah, more of that, please. Um, Marvellous. Lots of. Uh, very lovely people out there. You just go ask. You know, this is this is a, a step to living in the gift. You know, when we all uh, offer something out to the world that we can. Um, so thanks to those guys for giving us the space for this conversation. Um, as ever, if you are loving this show or enjoying it, please do share it. Um, if you like what you're hearing, give us a rating or a review. Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to, it's bloody useful because it surfaces the show to others who might be sort of thinking they need to listen to this show but they haven't quite worked out it's there so it will take you a few seconds and it'd be much appreciated so a little cheeky rating a little cheeky share it all helps okay let's get to it this is episode 31 of the spaceship earth podcast with sean pilot de Chenessy. sean welcome to the spaceship earth podcast Dan, very nice to be here yeah. on this, uh, has to be said, rather grey day. I know, I know. I've been, this, is, this is moving around London this week. I've gone, I've gone from uh, a spot to spot, generously being gifted by the power of sort of putting stuff out on Twitter. So I'm, this could be a new behaviour for this podcast. Gets me out of the shed in Bath. And, uh, but um, thanks so much for, uh, for getting, getting uh, saying yes to this. I've been um, really, really um, up for talking for a while. Um, I want to get in, I mean, you've got... A new book coming out. You've got a book that I really want to talk about, which came out, was it a couple of years now? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, you're a writer, you're a researcher, strategist, speaker. Um, it's quite, I thought before we got stuck into the post-truth thing, I just thought it was, um, for me, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a whole story of how this, I'd love to know a little bit about how this thing was birthed. Like what, what led you to this post-truth? But it was just interesting this morning as I was doing a little bit of prep, I just kind of looked at um, a couple of my feeds and I think, there was a few things instantly popping up. So it was like, um, there was something around uh, um, the, uh, the younger Murdoch, James Murdoch, sort of there was something about him, you know, um, challenging News Corp for their kind of silence around, uh, around the kind of climate, climate change and all the, all the fires in Australia. And then I sort of scrolled down again. I saw a report from, um, I think it was Avaz about um, YouTube serving up loads and loads of kind of um, quite big global brand ads on the back of kind of climate denying sort of content. Scroll down again, and there was something on um, our, our, our new minister, health minister, Matt Hancock, uh, on BBC this morning, being saying that um, actually we shouldn't fly less, we should keep flying uh, uh, domestically, and aviation has been decarbonised, and uh, electric planes are really not that far off in the future. As far as I'm concerned, that's all nonsense. <laughs> and so it just feels like we're in this time where, you know, this book that, that, that you brought out, um, The Post-Truth Business, which was exploring, you know, a lot of this kind of stuff I just yeah I mean we'll get to today but how did what give us a bit of context to where where this came from what was the you know how did it kind of yeah how did it come to come to be sort of birth into the world <laughs> <laughs> all right okay all right so um to, yeah so so basically to be really specific about the book as opposed to just talking about sort of a sort of random sort of life history uh, <laughs> which would be fascinating to myself but to nobody else um okay so um the book came out uh, summer of 2018 so launched it at the uh, byline festival uh, a couple of years ago um and uh, when obviously people like carol Cad the wonderful carol cadwallader was uh, was speaking and she'd just done the expose via the guardian which obviously linked up with the new york times and the washington post about 
Cambridge Analytica and, and all the rest of it. And then Chris Wiley was talking as well because obviously he was the one that had really um, sort of was it was the sort of the turncoat at um, uh, thank God you know at, at uh, CA and has said this is what's going on. There's also a lot of talk there about the um, subversion that was going on with regards to the Brexit vote. Um, anyway, so so coming back from why it launched there and why I wrote it. So go back a couple of years to 2016, and we've been going through the um, obviously the electioneering that the U.S. presidential elections, um, obviously when Trump was taking on uh, Hillary Clinton, um, and during that I was because you know I give speeches all the time as and I'm sure I know having listened to loads of your podcasts they're always fantastic and you know just to be a, a speaker and an author is quite frankly nothing <laughs> at all unusual because obviously there are lots out there um, and but what I found fascinating when I was giving a talk I was in the Middle East um, and I was on a platform with a guy called um, David Plough who had been um, Obama's campaign chief um, and he gave a really interesting talk about, and the point of his talk was how they had done the great campaign they did for Obama's second campaign, okay? So, you know, you and I, and I would imagine the majority of uh, you know, your sort of podcast listeners would be, you know, fans of the wonderful Obama. And, you know, I think a lot of people in terms of the received wisdom of this um, were, people thought, you know, great first black president of America, isn't it wonderful to have him there? This is a brave new world, you know, absolutely fantastic, you know, hugely you know, progressive move, forgetting that about half of America hated him. And, you know, in terms of the second uh, Obama um, presidency, you know, he got in by something like, you know, 52 to 48%. So, you know, again, people like you and I perhaps were going, again, fantastic, you know, great, again, another progressive move. Just not realising that there was this seething resentment against him and everything he stood for. Uh, anyway, so David Plough then gave a talk on um, how they had uh, organised the campaign. It was a really grassroots-led campaign that had got him, uh, really sort of propelled him into the White House. And as part of that, they had been leveraging what was still at that point... Um, you know, you know a, a reasonably new world of um, giant tech platforms and the social media sort of titans of Silicon Valley. So you know, um, you know, again, it's again, it's always worth reminding people um, to state the obvious that you know this is still these are still early days in that world. Um, you know, a decade ago. The landscape was very, very different, let alone two decades ago, um, for instance, when I first worked in advertising, <laughs> when they just didn't exist. So David Plough gave this talk on how they basically had run the campaign. One of the points he made was that they um, had basically scraped as much data as they could from Facebook um, and used that in order to hyper-target um, individuals around the States. Uh, and we'll talk more about perhaps advertising later and how that's all being done. So... Meanwhile, us in the audience, bunch of agency people and all the rest of it, uh, and, and marketeers, all going, isn't that fantastic? Because one of the results of that is that we got Obama. Um, we then found, you know, then I was talking to David afterwards, and I was going, so what do you think is going to happen now in terms of the Trump-Clinton um, uh, um, electioneering? He's going, oh, Trump will win. Um, uh, because, you know, again, he's using the same tactics that we used, but it's moved on even in the short time since the since, since we did it, um, and uh, he's really going for it. And we then saw, as we know, you know, the Trump the Trump campaign ran, I think, just over um, six and a half million um, individual ads um, hyper-targeting people across the states compared to Hillary Clinton that ran slightly under 70,000. 
So he yeah. spectacularly destroyed her in terms of the the, the, the usage and the leverage of um, the, the the sort of uh, the, the, pla- the social media platforms. At that point, um, again, there's a lot of um, people like you know sort of um, Zerkov, the, uh, the, the the puppet master in Russia that, that you know just sits behind Putin and that works alongside Putin, that plays around with society as though society is a theatre and as though people are actors to be moved, and and you can pull various levers and things happen. You know the, the issue there of the destabilisation um, of of the social media networks was beginning to be. Um, was you know the, the word was beginning to get out uh, in terms of one of the great points of social media was that it was totally open anyone can get involved we look back now in a few years to all those statements about oh isn't it wonderful when everyone can make their political voice heard what a great move for democracy yeah I mean I, I, I even just remember like the early days of Twitter when it was um, when it was just really pleasant you know people people just sort of like this idea that you could connect with all these different sort of thoughts and ideas and sharing learnings and it was it was, it was actually generally quite a, a brilliant I remember it right at the start I remember I was like 60,000 something to sign up to, and I remember this whole in the sort of strategy kind of networks of in agencies it was a really you know people were playing a lot with it and saying wow this is a really interesting thing it's opening up uh, the ability to kind of to kind of share these ideas to kind of get access to different ways of thinking about the world and there was this really kind of generous sort of openness going on mm. and now if you I mean obviously you know now <laughs> you know Twitter you've got like strap your kind of like armory on to get you know on it's it's yeah. a completely different game yeah yeah it's um, been like that comment and a different thing i remember i mean not that i'm a massive banksy fan but i did remember that he made that great comment during the film Ex- exit through the gift shop because uh, i'm old friends with steve lasrida's obviously the you know very much part of that world and um uh one point and they're looking at the appalling Mr. Brainwash, you know, and all those artists that came out that basically were just mimicking, obviously, whatever was going on in terms of street art and doing like a fairly ersatz version of it, which a lot of people couldn't tell the difference, and so they bought it anyway. Um, and, you know, Banksy was saying that, you know, uh, we used to be told that everyone's creative, everyone's creativity should be heard. <laughs> Actually, perhaps not. Um, <laughs> and, and so the same thing with political voices. And obviously, where we are, where we then got to fairly quickly was... The mentalists took over, and um, and you know anyone with a completely sort of a vaguely, should we say, uh, normal liberal with a small L, reasonable, considered point of view was just shouted down. And where we are now, as we know, is just a, a Twitter sphere that's just full of ranting maniacs on the far left and the far right, with everyone else just crowded out. Um, so to go back a bit. As this whole thing began to go in 2016, when it's, you know, the word beginning to get out, and it's just odd in that you could see that something something wasn't right, um, and it was you know it was just bizarre how the accepted norms of behaviour in terms of um, politicians not lying, um, um, and when they do, they're called out big time. Um, that if like we're used to. Um, we're fully aware that politicians obviously bend the truth and wear propaganda and all of that, but just blank, straight-out, spectacular, consistent lying is just something that we just didn't associate with political discourse. Um, uh, and obviously, you know, again, being again in terms of sort of bias, um, uh, you know, I think Trump's had a dreadful impact on the world. Um, but it was extraordinary how. Um, 
he was just getting away with yeah. it. And so, you know, meanwhile, we're, t- we're in, back in brand world. We're told that, you know, sort of um, there's been a spectacular decline of trust in brands. And uh, I always use the old saying that, as the economist said, back in the early 2000s, you know, um, you know, trust is the basis of all brand values. And and, um, and that's why businesses uh, uh, of all types have got a sort of massive incentive to retain trust, particularly in an environment. And so this is crucial particularly in an environment where there is choice. And so if we can accept that since the early 80s, there's been an explosion of choice in every sector or just about every sector, then one of the key points when you're looking at things like reputation capital, which I write about a lot in terms of is a brand or organization, I don't mind if this is a politician or an airline mm. or a chocolate brand, whatever. If, they are, if they're not trustworthy, reliable and competent, then when choice is available, you will go elsewhere. So yesterday is announced, for instance, that you know, Boeing, after all the 737 Maxes falling out of the air and killing everyone, Boeing are now just losing money to an astonishing degree compared to people like Airbus because choice is available and the recipients of those planes are going, actually, our passengers don't want to fly on your plane, thanks. So that's a classic example of trust destroying a brand, um, you know, at speed. Meanwhile, um, the one brand that obviously got away with this in many ways were the one that you know that, that was being blamed for it all in terms of you know the anti-social network facebook that because they've been buying because zuckerberg had been buying up the hinterland all around them there was no choice effectively so we saw that you know come a couple of years later the expose what had been up to the, the issues of cambridge analytica and you know facebook of which you know we, we all know what's going on there is that there was the hashtag delete Facebook campaign, which about five people did. Yeah. And I, was, I was one of them. And then found out that you basically lost well. touch with all of your school friends, you know. So, so where do you go? <laughs> so one of those. So, so therefore it became a completely self-defeating thing. Uh, although it's very nice to be off it. Um, anyway, so I saw this going on and um, I remember seeing, I was giving another speech and I saw the, there's a Time magazine ad, uh, I think that, um, uh, that, that said, you know, is truth dead? that um, mimicked an old ad they'd had in the 60s, the John Lennon saying, which was, you know, is God dead? Uh, when he said, you know, Beatles were more, more famous than God or whatever, um, which caused outrage at the time. And I remember, so, you know, I was, you know, trawling around, um, uh, um, obviously on Amazon and going you know, to Barnes and & Noble and wherever, and then Waterston's back here, and saying, what have you got? What, what books have you got on, on truth from a, from a brand, from a business point of view? And again, we've got loads in it from, in terms of sort of, um, sort of a sort of, you know, um, social-based trust. And we've got loads on sort of a, this from a, from a political viewpoint, but nothing on business. Mm. I was going, you must have. Soon realized nobody had written a, the most obvious book in the world, yeah. which basically linked up truth, trust, transparency, privacy, you know, then things like disinformation and all the rest of it, and how it impacts business. So with a sense of rising panic, I wrote it as fast as I could, thinking any day now someone's <laughs> going to drop, they're going to be like, you know that, there's like a million books on disruption or innovation, yeah. you know, and um, so I thought, oh my God, this is so obvious, everyone's going to be writing it as I am, and luckily, they didn't. Amazing. How long did it take you to, to get it out? Half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Six months of, uh, or maybe a bit more, eight months of, uh, uh, yes, yeah, so just completely took my sort of life over, um, and like all these things, the biggest thing I found with it was, um, you know, trying not to repeat yourself constantly yeah. while, while tying the, the, this, these whole issues together. Also, the, another big thing was privacy. But again, nobody, within reason, nobody was talking about privacy a couple of years ago. Mm. It just wasn't on the map yeah. in terms of mainstream audiences. So I was writing this when I was giving talks at events when 
literally people go, what are you on about? You know, and I was going, and then, you know, then as I began to finish it off, I began, you know, the tech conferences I was speaking at, began to meet a few of the startups who were going, right, where it's all going is monetized privacy. So, you know, people you know, realizing their data has value and therefore effectively um, brands can rent it for them from a price, which is now totally obvious. But back in 2017 when I was writing it, it wasn't. Yeah. So it's just a case of writing it because I just got obsessed with it. Yeah. And I mean, this this element of this this trust topic, though, I mean, it's, it's pretty immense, right? I mean, if you sort of strip it away from business for a minute and just as a human thing. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's it's I mean, I find it completely nuts you know as a parent and watching young teenagers sort of growing up in this kind of whole thing where as far as I can tell I look at my son he's like he just he, he just he thinks the whole political thing you know it's just it's just a joke it's like there's no I mean I know we've always as, as youngsters kind of dissed mm. power and whatever but to the degree that it's now you know I, I don't know I just think you know these this whole erosion that's going on then what do you trust and how do you build trust? And, you know, these big questions, how does, can society sort of evolve, you know, how can it evolve with, mm -hmm. you know, if the, if the sense of trust has been so devalued, how do we bring that back? And, you know, it, it forms the basis almost of, of anything, anything good to happen needs a sort of sense of trust around it, right? Or there's, a, yeah, you know, yeah. To, yeah. and so I'm sort of, you know, as I say, I mentioned that stuff at the start today because, again, just it feels like now we're in this, you know, as you talked about, the post-truth world, right? And mm. we're in this world. And as far as I say, you know, when you've got a you know, recently elected minister just, again, just blatantly lying on national radio. Yeah, yeah. And no one's challenging that. Mm. You're just kind of like, well, how do we, how do we, you know, what's, I guess, what have you, you've obviously learned so much through this journey, but... Are you getting some clues as to where is it getting worse <laughs> since the book's published? Or well, I think one of the key things is to realise that it's it's it's, bit, it's this isn't happening by accident. Um, uh, I'm a very very great believer in um, the fact that the um, sort of intelligence networks have been doing this deliberately, and particularly foreign networks like the, the Russian uh, intelligence. So the issues of them deliberately playing around with um, society. I mentioned the whole thing about Zerkov, the puppet master, um, and playing with um, social trust in a way that they that the key point is that they're not trying to get you to believe any particular thing. What they're wanting you to believe is there's, there's no such thing as truth. And they want you to believe that everyone's lying, that all politicians are useless, and that basically it's everyone for themselves. If you go back to what happened in the Soviet Union when basically things fell apart after Gorbachev, then you can see how it was anarchy over there. And the viewpoint was that, um, okay, so from, I think from a Western point of view, um, we've won the whole, you know, famous sort of, um, you know, um, Francis Fukuyama thing about, you know, uh, the end of history, um, you know, liberal democracy is won because it's evidently um, at that point, late 80s, um, you know, um, the way to go. And obviously it wasn't the end of history, to put it mildly. Um, and the um, and the intelligence networks um, were very clearly not giving up. It wasn't as though they all got something else to do. They got a different job. Um, the idea was keep on pushing the disinformation, the misinformation, keep on destabilizing. And they saw very much that um, things like the um, the social networks were a huge open goal. When we were running around going, it's brilliant, you just put all your info on there and then you can track down whoever you like, your best mate from school from 20 years ago, um, and, you know, 
don't bother with passwords or just call them after the most obvious thing in the world, you know, one, two, three, four. They'll never think of that, you know. But, uh, you know, so, um, you know, fast forward to where we are now and um, you know, these issues of playing around with society are very much being done deliberately. And same thing, obviously, with the, with the, with the Chinese uh, military or the Chinese intelligence. So, and then you look into things like what's happening with the erosion of privacy. Um, and it's, a, you know, it's all a, a, a fairly horrible mix. Meanwhile... There is an absolute social need for trust. There is, and this, you know, endless books on this. Rachel Botsman's book is always quoted. It's fantastic. She's a brilliant writer. Um, and you know, so that notion of you know every human relationship, you know, um, absolutely rests on trust, or things fall apart. You know, it's a relationship you have with your partner, or you have your politician of choice, or you have with your brand of choice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's why I go back to this simple equation that I talk about, which I made up this term as I was walking along, you know, reputation capital, which is to say all about you can judge anyone, any brand of any type in any sector on are they trustworthy, reliable and competent. You can look back to before Christmas, the UK election. You can think, right, what was the choice between, for instance, Corbyn and, and, uh, and Johnson? And no matter which side of the political spectrum you're from, I think, you know, um, Let's say if you're broadly straddling the centre, which, again, most people traditionally in the UK have been, um, then you could say was the choice between someone like Corbyn, who appeared to be entirely trustworthy because he really did say what he meant and all the rest of it, but was he competent, reliable? Possibly yes, possibly not. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson, um, was he trustworthy? I would argue absolutely not. Was he um, competent? Oh, yeah, and reliable, vaguely. And so there's your awful choice, you know, <laughs> I think, for most people. Do you want the useless one or the competent one? Do you want the liar or the one telling the truth? Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> the, the, the good things didn't all go into one side of that. So um, hence all those thoughts when people looked at, you know, the various sort of um, speaker panels and the politician, politicians, and it was, is this really what <laughs> the choice is? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so one of those. So, yeah, so I think in terms of, so is there a good story at the end of all this? I think yes. So it's, you know, as we know, okay, this being, let's say, looking at the media, huge de decline in trust in the media um, generally. Uh, meanwhile, big rise in trust in individual journalists. So we could say when it comes to, you or I thinking, what am I going to believe? Then it may well be that um, you, know, you may well be someone who believes everything that George Monbiot says or not. Or you may be everyone that believes that, you know, I know David Aranovich says or Carol Cadwallader or whatever. Um, these sort of even like the, the star journalists tend to have very devoted followings and you know, I think with the best will in the world, if something like, you know, Aranovich is saying it consistently, if Cadwallad is saying it consistently, yes, you will um, not believe it slavishly, but you think, you know what, I respect their opinions. They're not lying. They might get it wrong occasionally, as anyone does, but I believe they come from a good place. Um, it's why things like the New York Times is now having the, and the Guardian, having the fastest rising levels of subscription they've ever had. It's because people are desperate for something they can rely on. And they're thinking, you know what, again, yeah, occasionally they'll get it wrong. But broadly speaking, they're coming from the from a decent place. Is that, st is that still working on the other end of the spectrum, though, as well? Like the journalists who represent a completely different view 
Mm. Are there, you know, there's a, there's we've still there's still sort of power in. Oh, there is very much so, unfortunately. So you know, you, <clears> you've got things like um, you know, uh, now that he's been sort of you know, thankfully sort of you know, stamped on slightly, but the whole info wars thing. Yeah, you, you'll you know, the whole echo chamber thing is very very obviously, um, uh, which really really got going during the 2016 elections. Um, in terms of again, because it just linked into that time when the networks were really um, really exploding in size. Um, and I guess there's also that shift in and that shift in how we as modern humans sort of make sense of our world through the news system, the news that we get and, and the system, the platform that we use, right? Sure. So and that's the big thing, right? And you that's know, the big problem. Your worldview is being shaped potentially by, you know, a platform versus, you know, an op- a more of open way of accessing information. You're locked into WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever. Exactly. That's the great problem, obviously, yeah. when... Um, Again, it's what, what people like Trump have realised is that you don't need to go through the mainstream media. Um, it's what Johnson's doing now. Um, when he's just, you know, for instance, you know, five years ago, Newsnight, you know, bestrode the world like a colossus. You know, you could say Newsnight now is a sort of shadow of its former self. Um, when it's, you know, it's it, it, in terms of the, de- the decline in its power and its ability to hold the powerful to account. You know, so um, these people are realising that they, yeah, they don't have to go through um, accepted media channels. They just won't talk to journalists. They will talk to, or they'll talk to their favourite journalists, or just as Trump will do, will just broadcast outwards from his you know bed while eating five hamburgers you know via twitter you know um there's a thing wasn't it like two still, weeks ago still completely <laughs> surreal now isn't it no, <laughs> <absolutely>. <laughs> well then yesterday about him talking about <laughs> washing machines when he was doing his mad rant at one of these rallies you know the whole thing you know 10 days ago after um you know when the iranian crisis really blew up um oh, when the latest version of it blew up and um when he was just you know announced via twitter from his bed just gave the the, the uh, a note saying you know congress take this as red that you know, if the Iranians do anything, we will hit them harder than they've ever been. It's like, sorry, so yeah. <laughs> is um, America being run by Twitter yeah, now? Um, and also, someone saying brilliantly, actually, um, um, in terms of Twitter's code of conduct, does declaring war on another country actually <laughs> go, <laughs> go against it? You know. <laughs> so, so let's get into the um, let's get into the kind of brand stuff that what you what you learn. So, taking you know, seeing this 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 shift that's been going on, this post truth world where we're sort of like authenticity is bombed you know no one really knows what the hell's going on what what were you you know you dug quite a lot into the world of brands and business and advertising and how we're communicating and all time. So tell us a sort of just sense of what you what really came out of who who's really suffering right now and, and who and how who are the folks yeah. that are kind of responding well to this and what are they doing okay well, i think the interesting thing i think is that uh, certainly adland is so spectacularly shafted it's unbelievable uh, i mean you know the decline of advertising is long foretold. I mean, you know, endlessly, you know, uh, we've been told advertising is all over and yet miraculously, like capitalism itself, it always manages to sort of, you know, replicate or whatever, like, like something out of sort of a, sort of a uh, Schwarzenegger film. Um, and um, so I think Adland is, has got real problems. You go into an agency now and there's a sense of desperation. It's like the fall of Saigon. You know, they're all just like burning all the files and, you know, will the helicopter be on the roof to sort of, you know, pick them up uh, before everyone's, before the mob arrives, you know. Um, so I think Adlan's a really, really bad place to be. I think the business models are bad. I think it's a very unhappy industry. I think they're all spectacularly overworked. There's too much to do because, as they say, all the world's a screen. The work never finishes. Um, it's just out of control and I think it's generally just... Yeah, it ain't happening. Um, uh, you know, if ever a sector has a lower hit rate than advertising, you know, God, I'd like to know what it is. Um, so, yeah, there's the occasional, you know, blip when they do something 
amusing that we all like and may repeat, which they talk about endlessly at can lion but meanwhile you know the, the hit rate is so low it's spectacular and advertising in truth right has always been a slightly dubious kind of uh, uh, very I mean, very much so know, of course you know so. um, the, the whole point is in terms of the billion dollar persuasion machine has always been um yeah twist it as much as you can um because as we know that all those classic things as everyone repeats um any one of your listeners could give exactly the same <laughs> sort of um uh, sort of response now of um genuine brand differentiation is minimal um on a sort of again on a functional level blah 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 you know it's just it, it, the products are all well designed and well made and, you know, and the design thinking thing has gone into within a reason just about everything very hard to buy something now that basically doesn't do what it says in the tin so therefore it's all about branding as opposed to their received wisdom goes in the agencies as opposed to the functional truth um <clears throat> meanwhile um you know how do they actually get any sort of a real sense of differentiation there? Um, and which are the ones that are really um, punching their weight? Everyone always goes to the natural brand that they all talk about in terms of who does it well, Patagonia, as you're wearing today. Um, and yeah, the mighty Patagonia obviously are utterly wonderful and just good luck to them. Um, the ones that I think people tend to then go to very quickly after that are the niche brand of choice becoming ever more local and human and, you know, uh, 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 that um, that alongside your sort of functional things that make your life easier, that sort of smooth the way, and obviously tech does, you know, a huge amount of that, um, that the, the more human-faced brands are the ones that, that you and I love that will have um, a uh, sort of a, a particular, a human aspect to them, hence a lot of talks about, you know, humane capitalism and all the rest. Um, meanwhile, you have an ad industry that just doesn't, link really to this because it's difficult to leverage all that properly um you've got an an advertising trade press that is so just imbecilically out of date it's remarkable um i think it's all very uh yeah and it's kind of like it's 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 this whole thing so it's you know um it it strikes me again as it and it's sort of connected to again to this kind of what is real and what isn't in our world because if you you know we see you know we've witnessed these these big you know companies and brands growing and getting bigger and bigger and showing, you know, being, you know, that's so pervasive in our lives, but actually as you start to sort of um, see the reality of the world, you know, you see this kind of, our sort of, our sort of stories of the world maybe starting to fall apart around us. Yeah, then, yeah, totally. Then, always, then, then for me, it's just that the advertising it always just feels so, it's just becomes, it feels more and more uncomfortable because it feels more like, well, you know, we know that the reality is different. Mm. So, you know, even a few years back, you sort of, you can sort of see why advertising was still kind of doing its thing. Yeah. But as the reality that most of us are living, whether it's the fact that we realise that, you know, living in a city is pretty hellish, the air's polluted, there's litter and rubbish everywhere, we've got oceans filled out with plastic, you yeah, know. Yeah. There's all these things going on, but still we're getting these messages of kind of like, be this, be that, buy that, become this. It becomes, I think the myth just becomes... It becomes so ridiculous, almost. Well, completely. I, I remember back in, um, <clears throat> sorry, in the whatever, let's say, sort of um, from the sort of early, early nineties. I uh, at that point I was working in youth culture, and so I used to sort of write for the few the magazines. And I'd get small world. We all knew each other. The whole, you know, days lot and the Sleaze Nation lot and the Jockey Slot and the G Spots and all of that. You know, um, and so I remember, um, uh, for instance, let's say the. I mean, my sort of role Damascene conversion was sort of you know whatever late nineties. I was on the uh, um, on the J eighteen protest. It was the first big sort of um, reclaim the streets, sort of stop the city thing. Um, this is before Seattle and all of that. Yeah. Um, and I was interviewing people there uh, on the streets, and I found it really interesting that you had 
it's probably about 5,000 people there, um, um, and it's done by the Stock Exchange, and um, uh, from all walks of life, um, all ages, and of the 5,000 people, there are probably about, I don't know, let's say 50 to 100 <coughs> masked anarchists, as the Daily Mail will put it, yeah. and they trashed a McDonald's, obviously, in a Mercedes showroom, and the next day, the press was just full of, you know, basically saying, you know, anarchists attack the city, you know, terrified women and children running for their lives. You know, nothing could have been further from the truth. And what I also found fascinating was the people I was interviewing very coherently um, just saying, you know what, capitalism's out of control, um, planet's beginning to fall apart, we need to be doing something about this um, that is a different way. And there were no journalists there at all interviewing people. Just a few photographers taking a few shots, and that was it. So I used to go on the Gideon Co. show I know, once in a while, you know, um, who's out, you know, Radio 6 and, and other DJs on uh, at some what used to be like GLR. Remember that? Um, so I'm going on there and just talking about this. This is really uh, important, and it's really odd because I spent the last 10 years specialising in youth culture, where, broadly speaking, everything's been very positive, and everything's been put forward from the point of view of, effectively, what's cool and what's the next big thing. And suddenly, here's a bunch of people saying, this whole thing is out of control. You've got to stop what you're doing. This isn't working anymore. And that coincided with the campaign I was working on at the time in a very small way, which I cover off in the book, called the Truth Campaign. And that was we working, um, the agency I was working with, we're working with the um, uh, 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 Chris and Porter Boguski in Miami, the great Chris and Porter, and another couple of agencies in the Midwest on the American government's anti-tobacco campaign. And that was based around telling the truth and just saying, you know what? Um, there's no point if, if you're facing a really giant problem um, and at that point let's say you know as we know smoking kills one in three users um, Philip Morris um, and the rest of them are killing more people every week than fast forward to now than ISIS and Al-Qaeda have done in 20 years um, then so basically in order to protect Americans the American Air Force should be bombing Philip Morris factories every week um, and that would save a lot more Americans than it would to actually sort of you know trying to take out you know, other sort of particular sort of terrorist groups although obviously you should take them out as well um, so it was that those two things happened at the same time I thought this is just bonkers so I, I just jumped out of agency world and set up my wife was at the BBC so we set up together um, and we spent a lot of time I was just doing straight qualitative work um, and also just a lot of talking about you know, um, sort of ethical issues, which are now so obvious they go without saying. But at that point, no one really was. Um, but then you fast forward to things like um, um, the sort of, um, you know, say things like the sort of Stop the City movement, sort of reclaim the streets, then obviously things like Rising Up. Um, you've got the whole things like the, 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 the group that only really, has, I think, had any real that brought about any real change with the uncut movement in terms of the um, holding the the Starbucks and the apples of the world yeah. um, in terms of not paying their taxes. And I think only today or yesterday it was announced that I think Shell didn't pay any tax at all last year. Wow. Not a penny. Thanks for that. And yeah. there's a great comment from... Um, um, uh, from XR kind of going wow not only have they you know, <laughs> whatever wrecking the planet they didn't even pay any tax yeah. you know, thanks for yeah. that you know, but then obviously then fast forward to now and then fast forward to 18 months ago when I was beginning to finish off the post truth business and then I noticed that um, then the, uh, which I covered off in the book obviously as one would do naturally you know the whole issues about you know the circular economy and you know the rest of it and sustainability were all obviously in there but I was really focused on the truth aspect yeah. and I thought you know what no one has written a book about um, how vital it is, underlined in capital letters, that all businesses of every type 
get their heads right around the issue in terms of where it's going of things like the climate crisis. So I began to write the next book. Um, and then that's out in about two weeks' time. And just as the first book, just the timing of it, it was the first one. And I say, it sounds like a boast, but it's not. It's just a, I think it's a fact. I, I challenge anyone to prove me wrong. You know, um, It was the first, the first one, the first one, say, that linked truth, trust, transparency, blah, 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 to business. This one, I think, is going to be the first business book that just connects this issue of, you know, I say, you know, innovation in particular, where business is going, is linked, obviously, in the two big things. One is, sort of, you know, tech, naturally, and the other one is climate crisis. And I don't think anyone's, I mean, obviously, I hope there can be 100 books out next week about it. There should be. Yeah. But I think I'm in there very early, just because it was happening while I was writing yeah, yeah. it. So the first XR demos were happening as I was writing it. You know, obviously, Greta Thunberg, she began to get going, um, obviously, at the same time. And um, she's now, I think, it's interesting how she's, very rightly, the people's champion there's also some danger in there of you know um it's unfair to her to put it all on her shoulders obviously it's obviously sure. enormous pressure there must be on her to put it mildly to state the staggeringly obvious um and you're concerned for someone like that that is just set up to fail because obviously there's so many journalists that would just love you know it's like oh greta did you come here by car today yeah, right, did you exactly. walk here did you, did you swim across that, the that, north that sea you know sense of uh, like um uh yeah, I mean, this whole idea, we've talked about this quite a bit in this whole, um, you know, just we're all, we're, all, we're all implicated, right? The system is so pervasive, we can't, yeah. you know, we're all hypocrites. Like that, but let's start from that point and, and go on rather than yeah. trying to sort of tear each other down for yeah. eating the old burger or getting on a flight, you know, because um, we're never going to get anywhere otherwise. But um, there's this, just as we, before we sort of launch into that, into this climate piece, because so for me, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, look at this post-truth thing. So what I'm really curious and, and, and actually just exploring a lot in, in my work at the moment, but again, how, if we, if we go back to businesses and brands, let's say, yeah. I mean, politicians is another thing, but um, how, you know, we're in this crisis and my sense is, is that people are either in denial. I mean, as I read this thing that Nick Cohen wrote about these three stages of denial, uh, mm -hmm. but you're either, you're either sort of um, currently... You, you know, if you're kind of leading a business right now, you're effectively probably either in you're either sort of in denial or you're 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 accept inside you're accepting that something massive is going on, right? You're accepting that this system, this this model we've been pursuing, is bust, and and you know the the, the, the meltdown in, in in climate and um, ecosystems is, is 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 just is just the symptom of a, of, a, of an economic idea that's just it's out it's out of date it's got to go right if we mm -hmm. want to maintain life on this planet and so so you're so how do you you know showing up honestly and with sort of trust and authenticity in this thing be, being able to kind of step into this this new space of you know we have a foot in a camp which still wants growth and shareholder returns and new business wins if you're an agency or whatever it might mm -hmm. be. But at the same time, you have um, more folks who are clearly waking up. They clearly, you know, more, you know, we're humans. We can sense as well, right? But we're, yeah, yeah. You know, it, the evidence is all around us. So, I mean, Nick Cohn talks about this thing. He was, he wrote this thing actually a couple of weeks ago. He was saying like, there's this refusal to admit. And then there's this kind of sense of maybe there's this kind of bump in the road thing that you're acknowledging. Yeah, yeah. And then it's sort of down the line, the third step is admitting, but it's too late. So mm -hmm. it's because, you yeah. know, but I'm just sort of curious how, um, what's your thoughts? And maybe that's, maybe that's in, in, into the new book. But again, wh who is stepping into this? What is it that, how can we hold both of these kind of quite uncomfortable truths, I guess? Or yeah, yeah. how do we shift from this, this one way of seeing the world? Mm. And particularly, I'm interested in, in the sort of brands and business because you, could, you know, we know the pressures and the, 
I, I'm also interested, like, you know, you've built, you know, people have built their identities and their careers and, you know, their whole worldviews often are shaped by this journey they've been on. Yeah, <laughs> And totally. it's being challenged now. Yeah. So I'm just curious how with, with the truth, you know, increasingly, well, I guess it depends which, which side you sit on, but becoming very, very hard to avoid this reality. What is it that's going to start shifting these companies? And who, who, who are, you know, what's your sense? Or have you, have you been exploring that at all through? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was talking about this um, the other day. We, I was over XR on, on Monday, you know, uh, talking to um, uh, Will, who I know has been on, you know, and, and, and Gail Bradbrook and, 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 and some of the team. And it's just, um, I was pointed, there's a very good article in the latest issue of um, Dumbo Feather, you know, the Australian magazine. It's great. Um, and, um, and they talk about this from the point of view of, um, and obviously it's, ironic and the weakest use of that word because obviously now i think one of the key things is a year ago a mainstream audience thought quite frankly that xr were really exaggerating this and they you know again people tend to dismiss groups like this um as being either it's a bunch of sort of irritating people from dalston um or, or williamsburg or um or they're sort of a bunch of sort of like annoying students who are just this year's students what are this year's students angry about they'll soon go away and get a proper job or are they just a bunch of slight odd hippies um or are they just you know are they sort of the, a privileged middle class that can afford to be annoyed about something and there's always been obviously that other angle which is the environmental movement itself has always been very linked into to a, a middle class point of view because they can afford to be concerned about it and they can afford to lecture um, everyone else on eating organically, et cetera, et cetera. You know? um, so there, there are clear weaknesses to the movement um, that, um, that, you know, uh, that the daily males of the world just latch on each time. And he's talking earlier on about this purist thing is a real problem. Roger Hallam talks about this. If they only allowed people to be involved with Extinction Rebellion who led pure lives, there'd be three of them, right. and they'd be arguing in a pub. Right. You know, you, you've got to have it, as you completely clearly says, with Gail Bradbrook, who I think is a real brains behind it, you've got to have everyone involved, you know, everyone's welcome. Um, you know, everyone can, you know, can do something and be active, and it's linking that and clarifying it and, and enabling that, um, which is vital, which is why people like Patagonia through their active site does it very well, you know, saying, whatever you're into, let us know. We'll try and match you with someone who has a similar interest, blah, 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 okay? Um, but in terms of the brand piece, I think, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, we talked earlier on about this, and our kids, you know, our teenage kids, how, and I was saying, to me, it's really fascinating that the, if you've got teenage kids, when they were at primary school, they were being taught about this. So it's really interesting to me that um, you've got that generation coming through. And generally speaking, I can't stand generational marketing stuff. I think it's all crap. You know, uh, It's just very easy to do. It's very weak. But with things like that, it's really interesting. You talk to someone now who is 17, 18 or below, and they just get it. They don't question it. They, in terms of, as in they don't doubt it, they just go, yeah, we know what the science is. We can clearly see what's happening. We know something has to be done. They're not massive out of control consumerists. Obviously, they like looking good as everyone does, but they're not, um, they don't have that sort of obsessional me, me, me thing, I think, which is really fascinating on a branded sort of, you know, on, on, the, on the branded individual sense. Um, so is there light in the tunnel? Yes, I think there is. Um, and it's, Interesting how, again, obviously, next week, Davos, um, I was going to be going, and yesterday I found out I'm not, tragically. Um, but, you know, um, there's a, I think big business now is increasingly understanding this. And so, again, I say a year ago, if the mainstream audience in many cases thought that XR were exaggerating for effect, 
when they woke up in the early part of the new year to see Australia on fire, um, they began to perhaps question that. I think Australia has been the biggest wake-up call one could possibly imagine. And I think, interestingly, it's the site of horrendously, you know, just horrendous amounts of dead animals that were burnt alive. It's just horrified yeah. people, absolutely horrified. And more than seeing, I think we're so used now, it's an appalling thing to say, I think we're, we're so inured to seeing people clinging to the roofs of uh, houses or huts with you know rising waters around them every night on the news. I think a lot of people have grown al- almost immune. It sounds bizarre to say it. It's an appalling thing to say, I know. I think a lot of people have grown almost immune to the daily diet of yeah, bad like news. It's like a coping mechanism yeah. almost, isn't it? But I think when people start seeing animals suffering, I think it's really odd how the emotive trigger just as we saw a couple of years ago that when they, the appalling photograph of the toddler that had been drowned um, in an immigrant boat That's coming right, across from Libya or something. Yeah. And I think about 20 foot away, there are a couple enjoying their on, cocktail on a beach. You know? And it was, everyone's going, wow, is that really who we are? Yeah. You know, I think, so it's, I think Australia has appallingly, unfortunately, proven to the sceptics that actually XR weren't exaggerating. Mm. Um, I think a problem last year, has to be said, was that Greta Thunberg in particular was getting so strident, and it's interesting how that voice has been toned, obviously, you know, she's toned it down a bit. When it, it began to be so apocalyptic, it was a case of, like, it's over. It actually, quite frankly, if we don't do anything like this afternoon, then we might as well give up, at which point most people thought, well, if it's that bad, then let's get their drinks in because, mm. you know, and, and do nothing, and let's mm. burn some plastic um, in the garden. You know, um, people need to have a viewpoint that believe the science, tell the truth, as they say, and then in this particularly well-written piece that I read the other day from that my, what my wife found in, in Dumbo Feather, talking about you know the, the two types of optimism, the two types of scepticism, it is the active sceptic that you want to be, and the XR, I think, really need to you know, um, you know, further sort of push themselves towards, which is effectively, an analogy could be the wartime situation it's the sergeant in the trench with the troops they're surrounded they've got virtually no chance but they go well either we sit here and we know we're going to die or actually let's do it come on let's go let's take these people on let's let's confront this huge problem and try and fight our way through it there might be only be a couple of us that get through but come on let's do it i think it's that mentality it's it's, it's realising, accepting the problem is real, it's huge, it ain't going to go away, so therefore at least try. Which is why, I think in a business sense, innovation can really help us here because um, we have to think innovatively to and realistically to do things that can confront this problem. So there's, there's, there's two things that are coming up for me at the moment. Which is, so one is connected to the, to the kind of... Um, you know, what do we trust? What's, where's the truth in this, still in this issue? Because in many ways, what's happening in Australia, at least my sense is that, you know, you've got still got this kind of media story and this kind of government that are kind of refusing to tell the truth. But the reality on the ground <laughs> for people yeah. is completely different. It's completely, they're in this thing. They're feeling it. They're, they're, they're embodying this kind of horrific shift that's going on. And yet you have a kind of a, a the, the, the narrative in the culture or society still trying to ignore it. Mm. And, I'm, my, and I'm sort of curious about how this, as we've sort of, you know, we've had these kind of these kind of bubbles and systems around us, kind of social media and, you know, all the, you know, all the stuff that's shifted politics all over the place. Because the story, our perception of the world or the story that we've believed has been served up to us. 
But now that the reality is starting to sort of play out in people's lives, so I'm thinking about like, you know, in the UK, what might happen this year? Will it, you know, with Brexit, will it be actually because, you know, trade just like falls off the, you know, the cliff because we, you know, we, we are actually, you know, we're not going to be able to provide all these amazing jobs and growth, you know, the back mm -hmm. to the growth uh, mantra again. But, you know, will the realities start to unfold in people's lives that are going to, you know, is, is that going to also help these kind of accelerations that are needed? Uh, away from again this kind of promise of this sort of world this continual kind of perception of growth and mm. you know materials and uh you know we can just you know we're all right because australia's on the other side of the world i mean mm. you have a lot of that i feel that's going on a bit it's like you know this sense still that people haven't quite figured out that the, you know everything's interconnected <laughs> yeah, climate doesn't do walls it's yeah, like yeah, uh, yeah. and um but sort of what's you know yeah how that well, might can, can i say that's interesting because yesterday i was over at the uh, the rsa um seeing the uh, wonderful lisa nandy who uh, gets my vote uh I, I i always thought she's brilliant i met her a few times at think tank things a huge amount of respect for her um um and um also really like jess phillips um but anyway so so lisa nandy was she's talking about this in a um in part of, part of a sort of platform for her leadership bid for Labour Party sort of, print, sort of leadership and she was talking about so a bit about internal politics and as the, the red wall had been smashed obviously in the recent election she's talking about building a red bridge to get over those areas and then but then building a red bridge amongst global workers to go back to the basis of Labour as it was um, and linking climate absolutely at the centre of this on that exact basis of everything's interlinked and Australia isn't just something you watch on TV and then switch over for X Factor and then quietly forget it, even though you may want to do that. Um, because, you know, I know the analogy we saw again, New Year people, for instance, I know, classic one is, we all read it, people in New Zealand going up to the mountains for, you know, some beautiful whatever, skiing or something, whatever you do in New Zealand, never been there, uh, and some fresh air, and you could smell Australia burning um, from a mountaintop in New Zealand. So, you know, her point about, so Lisa Nandy's point about everything is interlinked, um, this ain't going to go away is if you see someone like that you know, who's going to have a hopefully ever bigger platform to talk about then it's a wholly constructive thing um, while other politicians obviously are effectively ignoring it or just yeah. giving it the most minimal sort of nod yeah, and I guess um, I, I mean getting into the getting into this, you know, the, this new book, influencers and revolutionaries: how innovative trailblazers, trends, and catalysts transforming business. Looking forward to reading this one. Marvelous. What um, thinking about this thinking about this moment in time there, yeah. where, where we're in right now, and all this kind of unraveling that's that's going on. What have, what's yeah? Give us a sense of what's what 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 have you, what's come out of this book? Like what have what have you kind of discovered on this? Well, what this I found out about it was um, that um, so I thought yeah again uh, I'm under no illusions the world doesn't need another book on innovation because quite frankly going to any bookshop and you know like you can bury it under the weight of them you know um, and so I thought so you know what can one do differently? So I was just looking at basically I looked at every major sector so you know whatever banking and sort of finance and insurance fashion retail drinks food you know car industry yeah. whatever you know um what i found really interesting i was looking at cutting edge innovation in each one of them so who are the bigger legacy players and who are the startups who are doing genuinely interesting things okay um and what i found as i was researching it and this one took about again just under or just over a year to write um was that um along with the, all the things that one would expect because obviously anybody can just research innovation and can research who's doing interesting stuff if you've got the time you know obviously anyone who can write can do it um 
But what was interesting to me, having done tons of innovation research over the years, when you knew all about all the things about IoT and AI and MR and all that sort of stuff, um, was this issue, again, of climate crisis, um, linking into every single sector in a way that um, I think a lot of people, again, in terms of joining the dots, if someone, I think, was to have said a year ago, what connects, you know, finance and fashion and car sector and the future of cities and the future of work and whatever it being uh i don't know um but this thing about you know the climate crisis uh and the emissions curve impacting every as i'm saying i think every innovative decision from now on will have to be taken on the basis of the first thing you consider is the impact of what you're doing on the emissions curve yeah that's the which, lens right which you, you know everything yeah which like a year ago Five, year, five years ago, that would have been a ridiculous statement. It would have been, unfortunately, the correct statement, but in terms of its believability, its yeah. credibility, people are going, what are you talking about, you freak? Um, now, I that uh, a lot. Yes, exactly. Now I think it's becoming uh, an ever more, unfortunately, you know, bluntly obvious point that hopefully is going to be very soon, tragically, it's so obvious that it's like, uh, yeah, we know that, good. What are you going to do about it? So you now talk about the, at the beginning of you know, I just I talk about a ton of interesting other thinkers. Everyone go back to the you know the, the, whatever she say the, the Godfather of sort of skepticism, Rene Descartes. You know, and his big thing about you know question everything if you want to confront the truth in in, in this context in a business sector, um, um, as I don't know Elon Musk did saying do cars really have to be built this way the way they've always been built? Why is that? Who said that? Is is that the law? No. And so obviously Tesla and have a you know, all the rest of it. You know, so the idea first of all of you want to be truly innovative. Um, on either the most basic level, you know, we are redoing some packaging or we are redesigning whatever it happens to be on a product or service level, then basically question all the sacred cows that go with that sector and then crucially have absolutely, if you want to put it in the XR terms, that at the forefront of your thinking because that is where it is going. Well, that's where it is now, she's saying. <laughs> Did you and and have you? So one of the things that I'm always really curious about with all of this stuff is this. I always get a sense there's there's some there's some you know there's a there's a belief out there that um, we can just evolve our economy to like a green economy. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's kind of same kind of thing, but everything's kind of you know low impact, uh, circular. You know, um, you know emissions potentially being drawn down. All these great things. But actually, behaviours still remain, you know, so we'll still be, like, travelling to work every day in our electric cars or whatever. But actually, you know, when you look at things like, you know, what's the biggest pollutant in the ocean? It's actually plastic particles of car tyres, for example. Or, you know, you know, why are cities becoming difficult places to live because we can't move in them, you know, because of transportation? So, like, there's, yeah. there's, there's some things that feel like it's not as straightforward as... as and, and also then, you know, extraction of materials and different materials we're going to need to kind of for the components and we're, st- we're still a very it's still a very kind of materials based there's still a lot of energy although you know can we sh- the demand for energy still is we, we live in a very high energy culture right so yeah. this idea that we can just shift to a kind of green energy high energy culture feels to me a bit deluded and sort of so there are it feels like there are some things that that have to change like this you know and i'm, I'm kind of interested in um and again, it's something like like the fly B thing yesterday or whatever yeah. it was, you know. Yeah. So it's like now we'll we'll subsidise low low airfare at the same time. Tra- train travellers is getting more and more expensive. 
Whereas actually maybe a more sensible thing would be to sort of hospice that, that sector out, you know, support it over a journey of putting it down and moving it into something else, right? Which is, you know, so I'm kind of curious again, was that, is that stuff, are you sensing that there are businesses that are, you know, opening up to this kind of reality or is there still very much a sense of, you know, it's business as usual, but we'll just green it all? I think it's uh, it is uh, to me more the latter because I think the other the argument of the, the the absolutist argument which one could say on paper is naturally the correct one in terms of widespread systematic change needs to happen right now um, the I think uh, you know the Gail Bradbrook Roger Hallam argument uh, the Greta Thunberg argument which is this is so spectacularly serious and Greta Thunberg saying next week at Davos she'll be giving a speech that was you know put out a day or so yesterday to the media we've got to, got to basically stop using fossil fuels now mm. now yeah on paper that is obviously correct as we are here now in a city that is a ludicrous suggestion as in that is not going to happen um there are things that should happen and that would be the right thing to do in terms of our collective <laughs> futures and the future of the planet as we all know but in terms of would any politician um would any leading politician and any um, sort of uh, governmental organization tomorrow morning do precisely that i think there is zero chance of it so in terms of so the one argument to that i think the greta thunberg argument from mid last year was well if we're not going to make instant systematic change then it's over at which point i think then you have a real problem in your hands because then people go well if we can't make that astonishing level of you know banning cars now as we speak banning all air travel now as we speak shutting down all <laughs> um then we might as well just do nothing and give up or whatever and we mustn't do that obviously so i think there is clearly a pragmatic element to this which is yes we have to as consumers actively obviously consume less consume better consume from better good companies that have green issues at the heart of what they're about um and that is i think naturally the way it is going to go and yes if they're going to be you know 20 years ago no one ever heard of tesla you know etc so that sort of giant thinking is going to have to come in on an innovative basis to radically alter how we do and what we do it and all the rest of it and as part of all that there also is a huge role for the billion dollar persuasion machine the ad industry who you know, remember them um who may have been you know while they sort of sob into their as i put in the book while they sob while they're reading you know horrendous simon cynic you know start with why the world's most annoying book um Meanwhile, you know, because they're great at um, 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 enabling behavioural change and sort of changing attitudes, they've got a massive job to do. Their time has come <laughs> to uh, rise to the challenge and actually get this point across in a way that you give it to people. Sorry, to finish off, like you know, you know, Morris Saatchi, brutal, brutal simplicity of thought. You know, uh, when he would talk about uh, where he's absolutely correct as a great manipulator of opinion, we say, you know. You need to bring people with you. There is a reason why things like liberty, eternity, you know, equality of fraternity was such a rallying cry of the French Revolution because everyone understood it and everyone could translate it and talk about it. There's a reason why um, things like the Sermon on the Mount, um, the um, Declaration of Independence um, and the launch of the Communist Manifesto were such enormously powerful documents because they were 
incredibly clear. They resonated. Um, they say they were un understandable. It's again coming back to people like Extinction Rebellion, who at the moment, long may they continue, I think they're fantastic, are quite frankly the ones who are leading the way here. They need to have really, you know, they need to have clarity, consistency, and leadership, to use the old Adlan term, to get across a message that everyone really, really gets and can then repeat to their friends and can get behind in terms of a sort of motivational rallying cry. It doesn't help, does it, when you've got people, like, even like The Guardian, putting them on headlines as an extremist organisation, yeah, like the Met Police classifying <laughs> them. But, um, I was at the New York <laughs> a couple of days ago over in London Fields, and it's hilarious. <laughs> exactly, sort of a, was it sort of a, the sort of MI5 sort of target, and they're a bunch of, obviously, as they are, great bunch of um, sort of well-meaning activists, um, you know, eating vegan food and thinking good thoughts and doing good actionable things to benefit everyone yeah. you know and uh, i know it's it's spectacular how um how frightened of them that the um the the, the powers that be yeah. are the, the pretty patels of the world uh, I, I was i was in the meeting at the, at the um around the corner from the commons about six months ago um uh, I, i'm get a policy exchange or i get a political think tax all the time i was at the policy exchange meeting when they were when they were launching their um their undermining document of xr basically um uh, when they is the head of the uh, on the panel is david blunkett oddly enough um um head of the counterterrorism uh, unit um a, a um liberal um, sort of a lord um and then some people from the, the think tank and uh, and also then um, the great XR lawyer from Bindman's who worked with Chris Wiley and all the rest of it. Um, and they were just talking about uh, the uh, the future of the city in general in terms of what one thing that all city mayors and governments are having to deal with is this idea of permanent protest. So that the, a bit like going back to sort of Roman times. So the idea of protest being something that is just a non-stop thing now in the modern and ongoing city is something that governments have to deal with and understand and allow if they are in a liberal democracy because we're allowed to, to sort of the right of assembly um, but then they were saying what what they found really unusual at that point looking at how they policed the April 2019 protests was they the police had never really confronted or been confronted with mass activation on the basis of very well-meaning non-violent people that were doing things for the public good and were cooperating totally with the police, telling them where they were going to be and what they were going to do. And when the police have basically, when they judge how they're going to police any crowd, be it at a concert or a football match or whatever, a protest, they always do it on the basis of, is there danger to life or property and all the rest of it? And are these people telling us what they're doing? And obviously XR... Because obviously it's so well thought through, saying please come and join in our planning meetings. You know, here are our email addresses. You know, you're more than welcome to to, jo to join us. And as they always do, totally welcome into the police, saying you've got kids, probably. You know, um, you, you must be really worried about them. Please come and join our protest. So, um, that, it's very interesting how that April protest, the goodwill was absolutely there. Very different mood in October. Obviously, had the hideous annoyance of the two imbeciles whatever on the uh, on, on the tube roof um, in, in East End um, which oddly enough I think actually worked in some way because they got everyone talking about the fact that this wasn't a, a, in any way a, a, a anything that XR had agreed with um, and um, yeah so I thought it fascinating how that whole thing is being um, organised and run and where it's coming from and how how important they are We live on a life-giving rock called Earth hurtling through space. How bonkers is that? If you like what you're hearing, please do give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show.
I guess this other thing I'm I'm curious of is that so you talk about permanent protest as an idea and you know I get I guess I'm I'm often exploring sort of what I'd call radical collaborations unusual suspects kind of coming together to kind of figure things out and um, you know when I look at the science and when I look at like you know climate ecology you know extraction of resource all this stuff and you I mean it's terrifying the rate this is happening. And then you look at kind of, you know, our sort of business as usual, you know, not just at a business level, but our lifestyles and our institutionalized lives in, the, in this kind of world we're in. And, and you can't see, it, it's still very hard to see where this opening up is going to happen. I mean, look mm. at education, for example, you know, I think there's a really strong argument for, you know, and I know the youth strikers are pushing for this, but a complete overhaul of the curriculum, right? If you're going to have to, if our children are going to have to witness this falling apart going on, at least give them the option to learn their way into it, right? So mm. that they're sent, they're feeling like they can adapt or, you know, they're not, because it's, at the moment it feels like for many kids, they're sort of, you know, they're seeing this this future unfolding and yet they're still being pushed through a kind of a, a trajectory to this sort of high carbon type economy and, you know, a, a sense of kind of a process, a journey that they need to go through and gates they have to go over. Mm. That's one thing. And again, even in business, you know, or, um, you know, the, the model is so entrenched, the consumption model, the production model, the business planning uh, timelines, the systems, you know, politics, mm. right? Um, everything still looks so fixed and, you, and still so separate as well. Like, you know, and I know there's obviously collaborations going on all over the place. A lot of it is still under the radar. But do you get a sense? Because my sense, again, after the, let's go to politics, like after that election. And, you know, I'm a progressive. I have no real, ent- I've been a Green Party member for years, but I voted tactically in the thing. Um, what I wanted to see, you know, was um, an alliance of progressive parties that frankly said, you know, we accept this, this thing that's unfolding. We put climate crisis at the front and center of our, of our, you know, of this revolution we need at every level. Um, that's what, you know, I think, and I think there's a lot of people that wanted to see that. Um, but yet now we go into this new, this new government and I see the, you know, the labor, you know, the leadership thing and, and I'm not embedded in it, so I don't know. But my sense is, again, it's still quite tribal. It's still like mm-hmm. what's going to sort labor out and get labor going again. I, I, I saw a bit of Clive Lewis talking about opening it up and he's, he's obviously out now. And what I'm, what's worrying me again is that we don't seem to be accepting that the complexity of this world demands radical collaboration, right? We, mm. we need different perspectives. We need different ideas. We need to sit with opposing views and thoughts and find new ideas together, right? And I just, that, and that's, I think that's the, that feels, you know, we're seeing the Citizens' Assembly thing starting to, you know, to travel out and that's a positive thing. But I'm worried that, I don't know, I guess like, are you seeing signals of this kind of sense of, we are, as businesses, as institutions, are going to need to kind of step into more of these kind of... So, like, you know, exactly like with the XR thing, for example, you know, for me, like, why wouldn't you want, uh, you know, good, solid, uh, non-violent uh, groups in the mix who are thinking of, the wor- thinking of the future of our citizens in a beautiful way, right? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you want that voice represented, you know, at these different levels? And... And again, maybe you know, maybe I'm, that's my utopic naivety, whatever. But I'm, I'm, I'm sort of. That's what I'm really trying to find signals. Are you know, have we learned? Are we really, really accepting the science and what's going on, or are we, is there still this, this kind of hubris, you know, <laughs> this kind of mm. power of 
were in control pulling levers you know and mm. um what's your sense through the through the book are you are you getting a sense that there are people there is going to be more of this way of being coming coming through well in terms of uh, um a changed way of being and, and cooperation so i think cooperation is clearly um a thing that's resonating um across society across cultures and all the rest of it so there's far more cooperation and also on a business level than there has been before and on a sort of level of radical cooperation the more that that we say the smarter sharper thinkers are realizing that this is actually a way again to punch through on a business sense um it's a way to punch through because again there's so little differentiation as i mentioned earlier on mm-hmm. blah 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 between brands that in order to really do something fascinating compelling and different you need to be bringing people in which is why things like in the future of work one of the key, key things there is you know uh, are putting together teams whereby you have um we deliberately putting together um teams full of people who think differently and you do that you know, people talk about you know diversity and diversity 10 years ago effectively meant something like the UN or what looked like the UN in a, in a room mm-hmm. of it like to be people with different backgrounds different colors different sort of creeds etc okay to put it just really bluntly um, now I think there's a lot of thinking about actually it's not so much that anymore although that's obviously to be very much sort of uh, promoted again particularly in Adland which is a almost looks like so you go into an ad agency it looks like the Ku Klux Klan is still just ridiculously mm-hmm. out, out of date but um you need to have um, uh, groups of different thinkers put together. In terms of um, the citizens' assembly piece and in terms of the political piece, it's still, as we all know, completely the case. You talk to anyone normal, inverted commas, and they'll, they'll, they'll tend to say the same thing every time, no matter where you ask someone, wherever you're traveling or wherever it is. And you say, what's it like living here? What's the sort of a government like? What sort of political parties do people really want? And everyone always says the same thing, which is, what I'd really like is for the best people from each party to get together and to run the country. And it doesn't matter if that's someone talking to you in Dallas or in you know, wherever, or yeah, it's yeah. like Doncaster, you know, um, or whatever. You know, um, uh, people say exactly the same thing, and obviously they never get it. It's really odd how in every other walk of life, whatever people want as consumers, quite frankly, they can get. Because if the market's there, the genius of capitalism, one could say on that level it offers up um, an answer to it you don't get it politically because of the powers that be so is there so while the whole citizens assembly piece which again on an xr level and my mind's gone blank for a second but it's the person i thought was really compelling here she lives down somewhere in the west country because i met her at um uh at, at the latest byline festival um um really really dynamic individual um and so there's a th- thing there of Citizen assemblies obviously are a fantastic idea in a Boris Johnson world with the sort of um, with the um, uh, with the majority he has. Um, is he likely to listen? I think the chances of that are zero point zero something. Um, quite frankly, is it the right thing to do? Obviously, yes. At the moment, with him there, I say, is there a chance of it really happening in a way that is actually meaningful? Unfortunately, I think it's just it ain't going to happen. Um, Certainly during this, um, the next few years, um, we'll see what happens when the next um, election comes up and one has to desperately hope you've got an effective opposition and that, um, yeah, again, you look at people, you mentioned the Green Party, obviously living in Brighton, I voted Green for years, the wonderful Caroline Lucas, yeah. but I'm under no illusions. Brighton is a complete bubble. It doesn't reflect anywhere else in the country at all. You live in the West Country, I go down to see my dear old mum down in uh, down in, uh, in Taunton a, a lot. Um, and... Um, you know, down there, uh, I was talking about XR there recently um, in the art centre, and people go, you know what? Um, 
a lot of the XR activity is people just blocking the doors at, in you know in the local shop, saying you know shopping is bad. People going, I just, I'm here to, to buy some food for my granny. Can you get out of the way, please? You know, XR cannot become an irritant in that sort of way. You know, um, it, that whole thing about keeping everyone on side is so obviously vital, and it's a thin line to tread. Do you do you um um been doing a bit of bit of work last year with Patagonia, which has been amazing. But just but you know, obviously they are the, the 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 company that always stands out. But thinking now again, are you sensing more <clears throat> progressive thinking businesses are going to start looking at? I mean, you talk about in the um, post your business, you know, about brand activism and yeah. But are you sensing we're going to see more kind of almost collaborations going on between kind of grassroots activism and yep. you know, brands as we know, and they've got enormous reach, some of them, huge influence. Yeah. If they're, you know, do we see more of this? Because I guess if, if, if politics and, and the political system is not going to, mm-hmm. to, to move at the speed we demand, we're going to need to see these other actors getting involved, right? Oh, completely. So in there, I, mean, I put a manifesto as I put into both books because, you know, it's, it's an easy thing to then to to remember and also for journalists to write about so in there I, I, I you know I put in there in, in the piece about authenticity that you know um, I mean, everyone again has been banging on about authenticity for years without actually reminding themselves what it actually means and so we can talk about that in a minute in terms of you know what, what this really goes back to but there talks about you know brands have to become ever more apolitical and get behind apolitical issues and a, again an obvious example is a brand that I can't stand but has, has done incredibly well because I wrote about them years ago. And when I interviewed, I remember meeting Naomi Klein back in the 90s, you know, before she wrote No Logo, and she was very kind to give me quotes for a piece I was writing at that point for the Face magazine um, about advertising. And, um, and obviously No Logo became this powerhouse of a book. It still totally stacks up. I really admire her thinking. She's an amazing woman, um, amazing person. Um, and so, you know, one of the brands she took on there, in terms of their bullying behaviour, in terms of their dubious production behaviour, obviously with Nike, yeah. in terms of third world factories and children, ch- child workers. Nike have sorted their act out big time. I mean, I still have nothing for them and never would, but you know, that, that's just a completely subjective view. But in terms of obviously their work uh, 18 months ago and last year with Colin Kaepernick, um, standing up to be counted, getting behind an apolitical issue so that isn't party political based, but that is just socially important and talking about, you know, his, him obviously with his admirable um, actions around sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, reason to take the knee around the sort of um, the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protests or uh, sort of a- activism was then propelled even further by Nike getting behind it. What's vital there, obviously, are things like relevance. It would have been ridiculous for that campaign to have been done by a dairy brand. You know, if it was done by sort of a, 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 a cheese brand, it would have been insane. They should be doing something about, obviously, animal welfare, whatever. Yeah. Um, but for a brand that has a large amount, a huge amount of African-Americans, part of anything else, as part of their consumer base, it makes absolute sense for them to be saying, you know, both on a moral level, and on a business level, for them to be saying, this is something that's impacting these people, stroke our consumers, and we should be doing something about it. And if the the American version of the Daily Mails of the world goes berserk, and if you get a few angry letters from a few angry white people, fair enough, we'll take that one on board and then just push on. The key thing for Nike, obviously, here is that, as they've done, it couldn't just be an advert, inverted commas. It had to be a, it has to be now where they are. In five years' time, we have to be sitting here and Nike doing the same thing, standing up to be counted. So I think this issue about standing up to be counted is hugely important. As, you know, as political parties in many cases back away from the, the these key issues, there's a space there and brands doing the right things 
have to jump into that space mm. to enable positive change. And you get, and then I guess with, um, I guess there's other, the other tension with the climate crisis is the sort of the white elephant of consumption, mm. in, in terms of the, you know, in the fact that we, you know, we're knowing more and more this is, a, you know, this is an ecological crisis, mainly being driven by extraction and destruction of ecosystems and for resources that we're yep. turning into all these lovely things and food and God knows what else it is that we're consuming. And I guess this is this is this this again this other thing like um, the tension not only to stand up and be authentic in yep. light of what is happening, but what does that look like authentically from kind of business de- decisions and, uh, you know, because I guess, that's it. I mean, it's interesting with the, you know, the plastic, the single-use plastic crisis, for example. Yeah. You know, we, 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 you know, we still have, um, for, you know, whatever um, companies are trying to do with, you know, moving to recycled plastics or... <coughs> um, trying to look gradually at different types of serving units but ultimately still you know you could argue that many of these companies they basically you know they are sellers of single-use plastic with stuff in it i mean you know it's kind of i want to just filter out but again it's like there are these these categories if you like that are just again in a sense like you know has their time come you know what i mean have they yeah yeah sure sure so on one side it's just is this consumption itself so consumption continuing, but but the type of consumption changing. Right. So as we saw two years ago, veganism became the fastest growing trend in the in the UK, um, and a lot of that has been down to a very much you know um, a, a a sort of a, a politicised decision of I've realised what is going on and something that I can do as an individual to actually to 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 do my bit in a wartime spirit is to actually change what I consume, and it may well be that I just still um, uh, I'm a flexitarian whatever so i may still have my juicy steak once every month but that's it the rest of the time i'll eat it in, in a different way and so that is a positive act um and again that goes back to this issue when we talk about authenticity and morality on a brand level although obviously a lot of people just choke as they sort of hear me say those words you know there's an issue of you know people talk about you know so it goes back to Aristotle talking about you know um, uh, the virtuous person does a virtuous thing for, 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 for virtuous reasons. So you know, do you act in isolation? Do you act? Um, do you do the right thing when no one's looking, or do you do the right thing because you're scared of being caught out? Now, quite frankly, um, if the act, if the if the if the uh, if the impact of that act is the same, then quite frankly, if in the Nike sense, if they're doing good things just because they want to appear to be a nice company, so what? You know, couldn't care less if they're doing the right thing. Good, you know, mm. and it just as you know. So if um, if Shell turn around tomorrow and actually did do something genuinely meaningful and different, good, I would support that. You know, um, doesn't matter if I like the people who work there, if I like what they're about. But you know, we have to also, you know, to think about demonising bad businesses or bad brands. We've got to be very careful about that one of you know demonising the act and not the person and demonising you know. You know, not saying that that everyone that works for Shell is evil. Mm. Evidently not. You know, and yet there's, you know, you could be very careful again in activism about just calling out, say, acts rather than uh, individuals. I think. Yeah, and yeah. I guess that's. I mean, that's this is the this is the sort of mad complexity of this situation that none of us have been in before, right? Because mm. we're, you know, we're we're sort of calling for the downfall of fossil fuels, but at the same time, you know, we you know you can't function in this world right now. You step out your door and you're emitting something, whether yeah, it's you sure. know. And so unpicking this mess, <laughs> I guess this is the thing, isn't it? It's like the, the, there's this kind of ticking clock and then there's this kind of 
how entrenched everything is in our lives and it's the pace that we can either reinvent everything yeah what are we prepared to let go of uh, you know what what do we feel can can we can adapt and evolve to mm. yeah and and what do we accept is coming and we need to you know bring that kind of you know, we need to start. I saw this thing on Twitter, going back to Twitter again, but yesterday someone had tweeted something about, it was in Australia again, but um, it, it was someone saying, saying, you know, we've all, you know, the government's always said, you know, um, uh, mitigation, adaptation is way too, exp you know, it's way too costly to do in the time. And it was, it was as though they were airdropping tons of carrots to uh, feed <laughs> yeah, wallabies. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah no sure. food. I'd love to see what the, you know, the cost of, 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 of feeding wall airdropping carrots to wallabies is going to co come in. Yeah, at. yeah. And, uh, you sort of mean there's these, it's, 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 um, it's, it's, it's such fragile times, isn't it? And that's the incredibly fragile times. But again, it's like something that I saw, just I noted as I, as I wrote the new book was that, I mean, it might be obvious to everyone, but certainly from an external point of view, you know, let's say 18 months ago or a year or so ago when I started writing this one, you know, when one said, okay, right, so in terms of the environment, in terms of the crisis, uh, climate crisis, which industries or sectors are actually doing something about this yeah. that's, that are really taking it on? And, you know, one might think, uh, yeah, veganism, anything else? Can't think of something. Um, once you then start researching it, the positive news I found was that in every sector I looked at, as I say, I looked at every major sector there is, and most of the major subsectors within them. So if I looked at travel, I look at you know in a broader sense from either you know um, uh, I don't know cruise liners going to the Arctic, so you can you know photograph these starving polar bears from the luxury of your you know whatever while you're handed a chilled shabli something you know uh, just these appalling I, I know, I know, extreme um, civilization. Yeah, yeah, exactly that sort of JG Ballard thing, um, um, and also like the future of cars and all the rest of it. But the key thing was that the encouraging news was that in every single sector. There are tons of people working flat out on this problem. You know, as in, it's not a, it's you know, it, it's they're finally woken up to it. And so, you know, and you go to any interesting conference or tech event or whatever it is, all the startups are just flat out on this one. So, I think the issue of have people got it? Yes, they have. Um, is it done on a multi-sector international basis? Yes, the news is out there. Again, unfortunately, if you like inverted commas, but fortunately, um, stuff is happening. People are doing things. You know, it's not as though, it's again, coming back to, I know we keep going about Extinction Rebellion for all the right reasons, but that thing about the awareness bit, you know, when they exploded onto the public scene from where we are now in London, you know, a, a year or so ago, out of frankly nowhere from most people's point of view, they have done society the world an incredible service um because they have just hammered those points into the public consciousness uh, if they all disappeared tomorrow then their job when we write it in history it would have been a great mo moment and i think you know gail bradbrook should be you know whatever you know make her the queen you know <laughs> whatever you know um but um um but you know one of those um it's um you know so the the, the consciousness bit has been done but now it's the again the next stage is right you know keeping the foot flat on the should we say the green accelerator <laughs> to keep people doing stuff and making sure that everyone realizes on, on an individual individual basis you can do something it's not just a case of waiting right so i sit here and wait for shell to just stop doing bad stuff or actually what can i do myself in my home wherever i live that's actually a positive act that has meaning that has to think to be really pushed through because that again gives people realistic hope mm. what was the what i'm yeah, um, thinking about the the new book what was um was there any, anything in particular that really kind of yeah 
excited you like uh, what uh, through the process are there any specifics that you want to you could mention that were sort of um w- w- surprising to you and um that's surprising well I, in terms of the, the chapters i mean i you know, i mean uh, so one of the chapters i say was on finance and insurance and i quite frankly a year or so ago you said that words to me i would have been like asleep by the time you finished the second word yeah. you know <laughs> it's like you know but it's remarkable like the world's least interesting sector um it, it was actually tons going on there so uh, again in terms of again uh, what's going on there both internally and externally so again yet again mentioning extinction rebellion we saw i think actually today and also yesterday they've been outside um uh banks um uh, and insurers uh, having a go at them calling out them for investing pension fund money yeah. in fossil fuel companies and so it's all those things of both the them being pressurized on the outside to do better to just shift around what it is that they're doing, which button they're pressing when they're choosing which company or sector to invest all this money in, that has spectacular impacts um, alongside those businesses themselves saying, right, you know, where should we be going next? What should we be investing in? You know, if you're now, if you're in the innovation department at Shell, which we imagine is something like <laughs> Dr. Evil yeah. <laughs> with their sort of, you know, grey uniforms and their burn, bald heads, you burn, know. Burn, burn, <laughs> Exactly, you know, um, I imagine that scene. But, um, you know, uh, one has to hope, and I do believe that, yeah, they are going, yeah, you know, we do know. I got know. trolled by someone from Shell on LinkedIn oh, really? during the last rebellion, yeah. Oh, fantastic. I was, I was like, That's quite was, an honour. I know, it was really weird. <laughs> I was like, I basically, I was just, I was, I'd, again, it was, it was the start of the October rebellion. There was like, you know, the, the mainstream media, again, was sort of projecting this kind of like, you know, really, um, you know, evil kind of uh, nasty vibes out in London being called to a dan- standstill. And obviously, you know, being out on the streets is a completely different picture. You know, it was hanging out with all these wonderful old women and like yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. teenagers and all sorts from all things. And I, I had just posted a comment to someone's thing about saying, look, you know, Go out and feel what's going on. Don't just don't just take what the mainstream media is telling you is happening. Go out and go out and feel it for yourself, and mm. then make up your mind. So I had some sort of innovation dude from Shell going to me. What what are you saying here? Look, we shouldn't trust. We shouldn't better trust. Yeah, we yeah. shouldn't trust the narratives of the media. Where are we supposed to get our information from? And <laughs> Fantastic. Kind of yeah, I know it's absolutely bonkers. Brilliant, brilliant. As he sort of pulls a lever <laughs> and you're sort of going to the burning thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, amazing. I was, I was trying to sort of explain this idea of experiential knowledge, and it just seemed to sort of it didn't seem to cut through. Yeah, it, but, but again, that in terms of that goes that goes back to sort of John Locke, <coughs> and, and and you know, and, and he often spoke about you know sort of all knowledge is is experiential. You know, mm. um, so. Uh, along with these Descartian thing of, you know, question everything, you know, no sacred cows, the John Locke thing obviously was all about what have you personally seen and heard yourself? Mm-hmm. And when you're, again, it comes back to the exchange of information, word of mouth has always, throughout history been the most powerful form of communication. We believe each other as opposed to what we're told, hopefully through, uh, you know, Adland. Um, and that's all about, you know, um, I saw this myself, you know, I read that, that's crap, because actually I was there and this is what it was like. And, you know, so the idea of word of mouth, uh, that ain't going to go away. Um, and as we said, one again, the benefits of things like XR is because everyone's invited. Um, it's such a mass movement, which it had to be when what you, Roger Hallam did his research, that whole thing about you've got to go mass very, very quickly and you've got to be disruptive, blah, 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 in order to force governments to notice and do something. Um, because it's mass, people do meet each other. People then go home and they talk about what they saw and they their word gets out, which is, again, why they've been so, so effective. Mm. Because you go anywhere now and it isn't just a bunch of 
as a Daily Mail may have put it, you know, a bunch of annoying people from Shoreditch talking about it or kids from St. Martin's or whatever. When we go back to the West Country or when you know, go back to, you know, whatever, my wife's parents up, you know, up yeah. in uh, sort of Tynemouth, everyone's talking about it everywhere, which is great. Mm. Um, What's your hunch with um, switching to, to back to politics? Again? What's your hunch with this? <clears throat> with this new government and that relationship with like Extinction Rebellion, school strikes, for example, because you got, yeah. you know, I got a real sense last year that these things obviously were, were, were really bubbling up, but the governments were focused on other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of yeah. almost allowing this stuff to happen, but now they've got a clear run and this majority. Do you get a sense it's going to be they're going to come down harder on this stuff? or do you I, I think they listen? will, yeah. Um, I think very much so, because you've you clearly got, um, obviously, you've got the right wing in charge. Um, and, um, and and again, having said that, you know, again, it, again it's on a political science level, you know, most people in the, in the UK broadly straddle the centre ground. And clearly, over the last few years, most people have been broadly just to the right of the centre ground, which, again, is often thought as being the natural default position for the UK electorate. Um, we had a blip during the Blair years, and people, you know, much maligned Blair. People forget the first few years of Blair were fantastic. I mean, it really was a breath of fresh air, as they say, after the years of John Major. So, you know, early Blair was absolutely pos- positive and progressive, and, you know, it was a great time to be around um what you've now got under people like Priti Patel who is I think a really um unpleasant figure a deeply deeply of the of the uh, of the bad version of the right figure I've got nothing personally sort of you know hugely against most conservative thinkers or most sort of you know mainstream labor thinkers um it's that to me what worries me is uh, are the far right and the far left um I think that you know unfortunately I think Corbyn was the greatest champion the Tories ever had because it, they just, you know, saw him lead Labour into oblivion. Mm. You know, if you know, the whole point of being politics is to be in power, to state the most obvious thing of all time. If Labour want to be in power, they've got to get someone in who is more palatable for a mainstream audience. Uh, someone like, I say, I personally really like <laughs> Lisa Nandy. I think she's great because she is super sharp, really gets it, knows her stuff, and has mass appeal and could take them to somewhere where hopefully they could be back in power. Um, but coming back to the whole protest thing, I think Priti Patel will clearly want the police to come down harder next time. All the thing about, you know, the police dancing with protesters in the way they used to, let's say, in the old Notting Hill Carnival yeah, classic right. photograph, I think that's really, um, unfortunately, in many ways gone. At the same time, there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, perceived uh, pushback against that from the police themselves. Yeah, there's a Be- because there, obviously right. they get it, you know. Yeah, exactly. And it's and they're saying, I mean, you know, um, when I was at the policy exchange thing, the police who were there going, you know, if you're going to police a crowd, you'd far rather police a XR crowd than a sort of like, you know, Millwall Cardiff right. match. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know yeah, yeah. one of those, you know, they're the, your, your ideal lot. Yeah. So um, um, it's going to be really interesting to see how this one plays out. Um, but yeah, think, and it's a big yeah. year, right, with the... You know, with the good cop, bad cop at the end of the year, it's like, um, you know, that building up to that, what's going to happen? How's that going to be perceived? How will this government want that? You know, what what's their kind of going to be their intentions for the end of year? Yeah, yeah, sure. They want to be perceived in the world. Well, I mean, a lot of people have said, you know, OK, so um, one of the benefits to the moderates on the right at the moment is thought to be that... Uh, as we all know, because it has such a big majority, it means that Johnson isn't sort of trapped by the far right. Um, so he's got more leverage basically to do what he likes. You know, again, 
We look at him, is he an evil person? I don't think he is. Um, is he an opportunist? Absolutely. Um, did he sort of, you know, go whichever way he thought he needed to go to be in power? Yes, he did. A lesson for Labour there. Um, but um, but he did it sort of, if you say, fairly realistically. Um, I, I think he was less far right than Corbyn was far left. Um, and to take him on, you've got to have someone that. That, that you know, I think Emily Thornbury, I can't stand her personally, but I think she could nail him at the dispatch box. Just obviously barrister, super bright. Um, she's great. You've got to have someone that can take him on, and you can't do it from an extremist point of view because you can't take the mass with you. Therefore, you won't get the votes. Therefore, you won't get in power. You know what? Johnson would love to have an extremist, uh, someone from the extreme left, to be uh, a Labour leader because it would just enable him to do whatever he wants to do. His biggest fear is someone who is sensible and realistic and gets it and doesn't fall for his bluster and his bluff and his enraging way of talking his refusal to keep to the point and all those things yeah. you need someone again like in that instance emily thornbury <laughs> being a barrister she just sees through all that she goes no answer the question don't talk me in a answer the question and she won't let him go so i think she would do on that instance a, a very good job it's going to be an interesting year. It's going to um, be a fascinating year, to put it mildly. Yeah. When's the book out? When's the new one out? The book out in a couple of weeks, actually. So here we are in whatever, mid-January. So yeah. at uh, UK, uh, February the 3rd, America, February the 25th, I believe. Right. So there we go. We'll see. Yeah, no, well, look, I mean, um, it's been great to chat. Thanks yeah, yeah. for like the, you know, there's a lot in there. I mean, as I say, I mean I'm, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into this. Um, there was other stuff I was, you know... Um, surveillance capitalism we didn't tap into that that's one thing i was just because it's just like that's a thing that i think that do it quickly if you like yeah just because what i'd love you to just again because I, I know like there'll be a lot of people that haven't don't really understand what this stands for what this is okay about. so the whole thing about so so again this comes back to my point about privacy so i wrote about privacy back in 2017 when quite frankly people were again it sounds arrogant but you know i wrote about it because i could see what was coming down because i, was, because I had time to research it yeah. okay which most people don't obviously um and I could see that this whole thing about um, privacy was going to become a bigger and bigger issue. Um, the idea at that point about um, uh, surveillance technology being invited into our homes. So at that point, it was the birth of things like Alexa. And then there's talks of, you know, so when Alexa can talk to Cortana behind your back and we can then, when they can, and we talked about, you know, fridges f ordering stuff for you. It's like, yeah, whatever, man. Oh, um, Siri talking behind your back. Yeah, exactly. So there's lots of, there's all that almost like half joking talk about it. Then we began to see the issue of, uh, on, on that Orwellian level, that idea of, when people would say, you know, my God, there's poor people in North Korea who are basically looked at the entire time and, and, we're, and, they, and, and they're under surveillance all the time. Isn't that dreadful? And then the point being made quite quickly, there were more surveillance cameras in, in London than the whole of North Korea. And that sounded a bit odd. Then when you had things like um, the just the early stages of a word beginning to come out of what was happening in Western China with the Chinese government um, obviously um, persecuting the Uyghurs, the Muslim um, sort of a, a Chinese minority. Um, and so I wrote about surveillance capitalism, um, I have to say, a year before the famous book of the same name came out, you know, one of those. Um, so I wrote about that and saying, look, this is really, really huge. So on one level, you had privacy being looked at from the point of view of everyone going, well, I know that Facebook is grabbing all my data and it's being used by advertisers. But, you know, if you try and explain why it's so technical and so boring, can you just shut up? Then when you send it people on a different side, well, actually, the next big thing there is going to be, as I alluded to earlier on, um, 
people based uh, brands going or uh, new brands saying right uh, uh, if we can take your data from you we'll hire it from you then we'll hire it out to um, advertisers at a profit um, and we can explain to you in detail how that works but if we just say that your data is worth let's say 300 to 500 quid a year for you personally people go you know what you got me when you start mentioning cash so yes I'll take that the rest of it just go and do whatever you want with it so it's an active decision to allow your data to be used by someone else for hyper targeting so um, when it comes to the surveillance capitalism piece, when you begin to get the idea that um, people are now realizing, as they evidently are, that you, were just being, you are being tracked online all the time, nothing is actually ever lost, um, and certainly from the point of view of all these things joining together, so just as we join together issues around climate and the impact on society and the world and other culture, um, if we can link together the fact that we're being tracked all the time, that our data is being used in many cases um, uh, in ways that obviously we don't have the slightest idea um, if it's being and then also if data at the same time is being manipulated and mucked about with by bad actors and that links into alternative facts and fake news and then we got things like obviously deep fake technology which I wrote about then yeah. um, which has now become obviously the real concern of the 2020 presidential election when you have politicians um, appearing to make speeches they never made um, because it's been made up yeah. um, and at the same time it allows people like Trump to then deny he actually made a speech because he'll just say oh it was a deep fake video despite it being a real video because they both look exactly the same then again this comes back to the idea I made right at the beginning of this which is it all goes to a very destabilizing space whereby no one believes anything. No one trusts anything. Everyone's suspicious of everything. Um, and it's a horrible thing. And again, just like the climate crisis, we haven't been here before. We've never been in a situation whereby, just as Orwell <laughs> sort of uh, discussed, um, what would you do when you if we were to say, to exp if all of us here now were saying, yeah, so, you know, we're carrying around these things that track us the entire time and we have things in our homes that listen into us and video us, you'd be going, are you mad? What have you done? And at the same level, you talk to psychologists. They'll say, bluntly speaking, there's a Western need for privacy. We don't like the idea of someone looking over our shoulder or listening in the entire time. There's a very different, bluntly put, Eastern stroke Asian uh, point of view, which is, if you don't like that, then what have you got to hide? You know, are you a criminal? You know, so the, the argument you'll have or the discussion you'll have about privacy in Seoul or in, uh, or, or in London, let's say, or in Berlin, are very different conversations. Um, we'll go we have to have that is a basic intrinsic psychological need for for privacy um, uh, here and there just isn't there and again that goes back to the issues of communism it goes to issues about trust in society communist states you know the whole thing about informing on your neighbors um, it's why very briefly there's a total lack of trust um, in let's or total lack of trust let's say in 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 China to put it a blunt statement, which goes right back to the um, deliberate sense of mistrust and suspicion put on a local level by the communist um, um, sort of um, authorities and authoritarian state. It's why uh, um, sort of at the polarity of that statement. It's why things like Alibaba were so successful so quickly when as Jack Ma said you know once you have trust everything else is easy and so what he did was basically digitize trust and the classic example of digitized trust as everyone uses is Airbnb the idea that 
when you and I were teenagers, if we'd said, oh, we're going to go off to wherever, some other foreign country, and I think I'm going to go sleep in some stranger's house, or if your sister said it or whatever, your parents would have gone mental. It's like, what are you talking about? You know, they might murder you in your sleep. But the idea being, obviously, what well, the most basic level, if I know that the person whose home I'm going to sleep in, if they know that I know who they are and that they can be found out, if they murder me, they'll be caught. And so therefore, therefore you know, digitization gave us digitized trust, which what well, people like Rachel Botsman talks about in her mm. book a lot. It's a why we can get in, we can call an Uber, and we're completely drunk, happy to allow um, ourselves or our friends or whatever to get into a stranger's car at three in the morning. Digitized trust. So again, all these things, that, so surveillance capitalism basically sort of linked across all those areas um, because I think so everything is so interlinked. You can't, can't talk about one without the others, hence the book, uh, and hence the problem writing it. I thought I was going mad, having to hold all these things in my head the entire yeah, yeah, time right. so I didn't double up, you know, so saying, well, privacy links into fake news, and privacy links into disinformation, and disinformation links into misinformation, and misinformation links into sort of something else, and it's all, so you have to yeah, try right. and separate them to make them coherent and understandable and evidence what you're saying, so you're not just making it up, but... Um, do it in a way that, yeah, that is palatable. It's mad. <laughs> I mean, just, just sort of the, my sort of final thought on this is like, I can't remember the author's name. It's gone, but I read a book, you probably know, but I read a book about uh, 10 years ago called em Empathic Civilization. Mm, sounds um, very good. And it gave me a lot of hope because it was talking about like this idea that humanity might evolve uh, uh, through this interconnectivity <laughs> yep. to effectively to a point where we do have this global empathy because we... You know, we <clears throat> through understand through this ability to share all this knowledge and information that we yep. and we, we we understand. Therefore, we're able to kind of empathise. Um, you know, interspecies an interspecies level at a cross cultural level, whatever, and, <clears throat> and eventually we'll move to this to this moment in time. And this was way 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 before the, the really the social internet kicked off and yeah, yeah. got. I mean, it was kicking off, but it had you know we hadn't got this kind of this 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 um this post-truth world that we're in now and i guess this this is the this is the thing right we've talked about this a lot but we're in, you know this climate and ecological crisis and then we're in this kind of post-truth world mm -hmm. where actually it feels like intuitively if we're gonna if we're gonna like sort this thing out like we need we need to have trust we need that we need that you know we need a kind of a world that has this where where trust comes back into our lives where we're yeah. able to kind of step into this place of kind of empathy and respect and uh um an openness and and courage collectively to move and i guess that's this is the big question right is it, it is uh, will we get there or, or or have we just you know have, is there just too much now holding this kind of oh no i think we will get yeah. there very much so uh, i think there's just such a a thirst for honesty and truth and reliability because the world is so out of control i think there's an absolute desperation for solid ground when everything seems so fluid and movable, um, when you know, people always bang on about the fact that things are moving so quickly, well, actually, they aren't moving that quickly. You know, they moved a lot quicker about 10 years ago um, when things like Silicon Valley was really exploding. I mean, really, you know, so there's no real innovation that's come out of Silicon Valley in the last five years. You know, it's, it, that, that bit really happened very quickly earlier on. Not to say that something else won't happen that's very innovative, but certainly the recent past has been quite slow. Um, it's funny because, as you're saying, yeah. it's making me think of, um, oh, I forget his name, but he talks about, um, it's a futurist, he talks about, um, which has always touched me, this idea that, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the breakthroughs we really need now 
the most innovative breakthroughs are going to be like about what it is to be human, not not. Oh yes, yeah, so that, like that, that leads into things like spiral dynamics yeah. and all of that. And so that, that idea of um, just you know just just how we shift through different stages of consciousness, um, and it's why we admire. It's why we admire things, again, coming back to Patagonia. Yeah. It's not just because they're a nice company that make good outdoor clothing and have a few farmers markets and all the rest of it. There's a, a, a demonstration of how to act, how to be, a, a level of, let's say, you know, I talk about humane capitalism a yeah. lot in that book, a, a demonstration that there's a different way of doing these things. You, know, you can still make a, a healthy profit, and that's to be encouraged. You can still have a perfectly nice lifestyle, whatever that may be, um, uh, by doing things in a decent way. And it's not a in what would have been dismissed, again, a decade ago, and Daily Mail speak as being a pathetic liberal with a small L or just grow up point of view. There's a reason why we respect people who act in that decent way, who have a sense of you know genuine authenticity. Um, there's a reason why people are so uh, enamored, in, okay, in a very niche level, by things like, I don't know, interesting talks, TED Talks, the Do Lectures, I know you're very involved, it's things like that. There's a reason why small festivals are so attractive. It's a reason why, despite the fact that we're told religion is collapsing, actually in many, way, many ways, it's coming right back, I think, in terms of Such religions of, of, of search of meaning and doing things for the social good. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, my wife goes to this church in Brighton called St. Peter's that does... It, it, no one else is looking after the homeless community. <laughs> you know, they don't look to Pretty Patel to look after you if you're homeless. Mm. You look to your local church to to welcome you in and to give you somewhere safe to be um, and to feed you and to comfort you. And that's what we need. It's you know th that sort of activity. So yeah, I think there's a ton of that out there. And on, again, unfortunately, the way the media is set up, as we know, um, they they will say you know bad things happen quickly. Good things happen slowly, and the media loves quick things. So the media do not go over the last, you know, sort of few months. X many homeless people have been kindly looked after, and have been given us a, a safe place to stay in the evening, and a welcoming smile and a hot meal. Because that ain't news. What is news is homeless. One homeless man stabbed someone in Sunderland. Yeah. Oh my God! <laughs> and that's the problem. <coughs> keep um, the fear up. <laughs> keep, keep the fear up. Uh, despite the fact that if you look at magazines like. Positive news, huge amount of positivity out there. But again, I think it's being it's being communicated just like the XR message, increasingly on a, a word of mouth basis. Yeah. So it's again, it's why people are going. Do I really want to watch News at Ten? Uh, no, I don't want to have like the latest list of murders and rapes and things on mm. fire. I want to basically sort of. Uh, yeah, I want to be aware of it. But I'm, in terms of what I'm going to genuinely believe, it's the word of mouth thing from people who I respect, who I trust. Amazing. Um, we could go on, but we've got we've had we've had a quite a good go here. We started um, it was light, and it's now I know, dark. No, exactly. Um, Sean, thank you for Not sharing for sharing your time. And um, the, th the thing I just want to sort of leave with, like, so you know, obviously, this podcast inspired by many great people's work around this concept of the spaceship Earth, um, particularly sort of Bucky Fuller and, and and others. And I'm sort of always enamoured by this, you know, this this idea of, you know there are no passengers on this earth and we're all crew and actually right now most of the crew that seem to be the non-humans that are kind of flying this this planet right now but i'm just curious as I always ask a question so right now thinking about you know thinking about the work you're doing with businesses particularly like what what does it mean in your view to be crew right now on the spaceship earth how would you you know what's what what's 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 right now telling telling you this idea of stepping up what's what does that mean to you 
stepping up to be counted, um, uh, I think it's very much this idea, uh, and we've spoken a lot about Extinction Rebellion in this, um, although nothing to do with it, I'm a complete outsider to it. I'm just, an, uh, I'm just an, a, a huge admirer. You know? um, uh, I've been on, on the sort of, uh, obviously, on, on the marches, but not much else, unfortunately. Um, I'd say that um, personal activism is what I think I find really fascinating because to be an activist, again, a decade ago meant some angry person with a mask on chucking something through McDonald's window. To be an activist now is my elderly mother um, or your neighbour or us or anyone because people are increasingly realising that um, beneficial, socially aware, progressive acts have to be done on a totally personal basis, along with hopefully a societal basis. Communities where it's at, you know... I don't want to talk about George Osborne, but we are all, all in this together. And I think, you know, he jumped on a, a, a very decent saying for the wrong reasons. But I think people are increasingly realising that we're all in this together. And so, um, you know, love thy neighbour is um, a great way to uh, live one's life. Nice. Thanks a lot, Sean. Good luck with the book and we'll be in touch. Hope so. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sean. Um, that was, um, yeah, that was a, a, a good wind-ranging chat about some pretty big stuff eh you know just simple things like truth global truth in a kind of world of fake and uh, how might we have a kind of uh, global civilization shift in light of the um, ecological and climate crisis that's um, engulfing everything right now um can they you know my sense is, i mean that's where i got this sort of blows my mind all this stuff but you know can we have one without the other? Is it possible to have that kind of civilizational response um, without a kind of grounding of of kind of truth in our culture and society? Feels like a big a big ask. Um, but anyway, who knows? We're all part of it, folks. We're all we're all we're all crew, right? We've all got to step up and get on with this stuff. Let's let's make let's make twenty twenty an honest year where we just kind of like try to kind of avoid lies where we kind of like pull people up for talking shite um you know let's just not allow it to happen it's not acceptable to have a culture where it's absolutely fine to lie and actually no one really knows anymore what's 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 true and what's false it's just it's bonkers right lot in there hope you enjoyed it hope you're feeling all right about it i just remembered who wrote the empathic civilization which is the book i mentioned towards the end of the course as jeremy rifkin um it absolutely blew my mind, this book. I, I picked it up um, about a decade ago. It's a huge book, um, The Empathic Civilization, and it's called The Race to Global Consciousness in a World in Crisis. Um, and it, it really, yeah, worth a read. But this was sort of before, this was kind of still when we thought most people were still telling the truth. We, we hadn't kind of reached the kind of fake news madness that we're in now so um this added a whole new level of total complexity and head frying madness to to deal with anyway thanks for tuning in thanks for listening it means a lot please do share the show or or give it a rating or a review if you like what you've been hearing um it really helps um please do that if you want to reach out you can get me dan at spaceship.earth or on instagram the spaceship.earth um Sign up to the newsletter, going out once a month, uh, updates on the podcast, other bits and pieces that are going on, and general kind of awesomeness around uh, the shift to a more kind of regenerative, uh, life-sustaining 
culture in uh, on this beautiful planet. So there you have it, folks. Um, hope things are good. Uh, take it easy. Remember, there are no passengers on Spaceship Earth. We're all crew. Until next time, peace and out. Peace.